I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm happy to welcome to the show Alex Friedman, co-founder of Lola, who joins me on the line. Alex, thanks so much for calling in. Thank you for having me. Now, Alex, I, if I get your bio, read your bio correctly, you're a Wharton MBA grad from 2011. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, but uh, but in, in, unless my memory is totally failing me, you were not in my class. Is that true? <laughs> That's true. Okay. Nice no shame. No, no, no shame. <laughs> I'm just I'm just uh, trying to make sure that I'm, my memory is not failing me. Okay. So, Alex, give us the elevator pitch for. Lola. Actually, before you do that, let's make sure our listeners can get to your website. So it's mylola.com. Okay, give us the elevator pitch for Lola. Thank you. So Lola is the first lifelong brand for your body. Created for women, by women. Lola addresses every life stage with a commitment to product transparency and a community built on candid dialogue about all the things we don't openly talk about. So more simply put, uh, we're a feminine care brand, and we currently sell 100% organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners in a subscription format. Okay. Well, uh, I'm glad we got to the specifics at the end of that because I, it gave both the big brand aspirations, and uh, I'm sure there's a reason you didn't call it uh, Dollar Tampon Club. Uh, so right. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are probably many reasons you didn't call it that, but but you have big brand aspirations. But uh, tell us about your, your first product, your first service. Yeah. Sure. So we launched the business two years ago with one product, 100% organic cotton tampons. Um, and the real moment that we realized we needed this product was when my co-founder Jordana and I realized we couldn't figure out what was in the mainstream brand. Mm. And the reason we couldn't figure that out is because the FDA actually doesn't require the big tampon brands to disclose comprehensive ingredients. So um, some of them don't. And, you know, what we decided at that time was, well, we could introduce a new brand to the market with 100% natural organic cotton tampons delivered in a subscription format um, the way that, you know, a, a whole lot of other products have been delivered to our doors for years. And so that was the very simple business model that we launched with. And over the past two years, we've layered on additional products like pads and liners and also a first period kit for a younger audience. Okay. And just to make it really specific on the tampon product, it, it's a it's a monthly subscription service. And what, what do I pay? So it's, um, one or two boxes every one or two months, mm -hmm. and it's nine dollars for two bo a box for two boxes, or ten dollars a box if you get one. Um, or you could get pads and liners, um, nine dollars a box, yep. or eight dollars a box if you get two. Okay, and uh, we're now outside my particular personal expertise uh, for obvious reasons. But the the uh, do women typically use multiple products, or they they stick to one? Uh, approach or the other? Um, so a lot of women use multiple products and then, you know, a lot of women also prefer one, one of the products. Mm -hmm. And so the way it works is, um, you know, you could start with pads, for example, in the first few years, you would have your period and then switch over to tampons, or you could be a tampon user for life, or you could prefer one product for the first day or two of your period when it's heavier and then switch over to something when it's lighter. And so, 
uh, a big part of what we're trying to build is a customized solution that allows women to mix and match mix and match products and also mix and match the SKUs within the boxes they get to make sure that they're able to get exactly yeah. what they need when they need it. Yeah, and and calibrate us a little bit on on price. So if I were to buy a similar number of tampons from Kotex or something, what would I what would I pay and how does it compare to what you charge? Yeah. So basically, um, let's say you get two boxes of tampons a month from Lola at $9 a box. Mm -hmm. Um, What you're getting is 100% organic cotton tampons. There are 18 per box. um, And you can customize down to the SKU. So there are four different SKUs, light, regular, super, and super plus. Mm -hmm. Um, And the mix and match feature within a box is brand new to market. You know, if you go to uh, CVS or Dwayne Reed, you pick up a pre-packed box and it may or may not have what you need in it. Right. Um, our our price is relatively in line with the market. It's a, a slight price premium, but it bakes in delivery. Yeah, I see. Basis. Yeah. Okay, so I, I want to step back to the, to the strategy question here because you really are mixing two different things here. Uh, in this in this service offering, the first is a differentiated product, and the second is a different business model, a different service uh, delivery model. And I, I wonder if you could talk through how you thought about which came first and how important is it that they go together? Sure. So actually, um, the original idea was more based on delivery than anything else. Right. It was you know, if we can get everything else delivered to our door at any time of day or night, why not tampons, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, given such a regular need for this product and the knowledge that we always need it every 28 or 30 days, um, why doesn't this just arrive? And Mm -hmm. as we started digging into the industry um, and trying to figure out what specific product we would want to manufacture and sell, we realized that the bigger problem was actually that we couldn't figure out what was in the product. So it kind of started with delivery, but product became the really big problem. Yeah. And um, in order to validate the opportunity, we talked with many women as we possibly could about the products they use, um, whether they related at all to the brands and, you know, what role their feminine care brands played in their lives. And we realized there was another really big problem, which was we demand a lot more from brands and other product categories. Um, and women weren't demanding a lot from their tampon brands. You know, yeah. we deserve uh, product transparency. We deserve for it to be a relatable brand, a brand that has a service that gets you what you need when you need it. And so for us, it really um, came down to brand and product more than the delivery service. Yeah. Interesting. And and how how significant are the you you started your your lead on the product differentiation was you don't know what's in a mainstream brand uh tampon. And I guess I've got two questions. The first is the substantive medical and scientific question, which is how much risk is actually posed by uh an existing by the existing tampons. And and the second is is this really a salient issue for your consumer. Right. So on the first one, how much risk is actually posed? Um, So the thing that really got us is just lack of transparency. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the FDA is under regulating this market by not requiring brands to disclose their ingredients. And we've done a ton of research into the scientific community and what long-term studies have been done to determine um, safety of tampons over the last 
several decades and haven't found a lot. And so, you know, basically it's an under-regulated, under-researched market. And mm-hmm. the choice was simple for us in the absence of data. We'd rather have the product be made out of something that we know and trust, which is 100% organic cotton. Um, the second question is how salient of an issue is this to our consumer? And I think um, that really gets to the crux of the challenge of our brand, which is that most consumers don't know they have an issue. So our consumer is a woman who is a conscious consumer. She's thinking about what's in all of the other products that go in and on her body. Yet, because periods are a taboo subject, um, she hasn't yet necessarily made the connection between her feminine care and her health overall and um, the scrutiny that she applies to other product categories don't apply in this product category. So we're actually informing our consumer of a problem and then solving it. Yeah, but that wouldn't that that's usually not that's not necessarily the ideal opportunity. I mean, you don't necessarily you you'd prefer to solve a problem the consumer knows she has, right? So does that yeah. make it <laughs> So I I I I I guess I'm curious about why take on a non-issue? And I mean, I can imagine doing these customer interviews, you must have heard you must have heard amazing stories and an incredible amount of pain around around dealing with feminine care more generally. How did you decide that this was the hot button issue, the 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 transparency? The way that we did was that it was very personal to us. We felt personally violated mm-hmm. by the fact that in all other product categories, like when you go to a restaurant and you ask what's in your meal, um, if, if they won't tell you whether it has gluten or if there's meat <laughs> in it, you would be concerned. Right. Um, and, you know, we have developed uh, these habits of looking at, you know, looking at our food, looking at our face cream, looking at our shampoo, knowing what goes on and in our bodies. Um, and the idea that there is a market that is, you know, under highly underregulated from an ingredients perspective, simply because the topic hasn't come up in conversation because it's an awkward topic was mm-hmm. something that really made um, Jordana and me a little bit crazy. And the mm-hmm. more we thought about it, the more we wanted to change that for us and for our friends and for other women. And, um, you know, the way that we knew that this idea really had legs was from talking to hundreds of other women and Mm -hmm. asking them if they also cared. And for the most part, they did. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to credit that or characterize it as a little bit of a mix of founder passion and mission with uh-huh. with validated with a with validated opportunity with your with your customer base is that accurate? That sounds right. All right, all right. Um, okay, so now I'm going to ask you maybe even a harder question, which is, uh, I'll give you sort of the cynical reaction, which is, oh come on, you just did, you know, Dollar Shave Club for tampons. I mean, it's just the application of a pretty straightforward idea to yet another category. How can you? How can a startup possibly win at this? And what would give you an unfair advantage in this in this space? So I think we're really the first company to go after building a lifelong brand focused on reproductive health for mm. women from puberty to menopause and beyond. And what you're seeing now, kind of, is our early business, which is natural period products only. But the brand that we're building 
um, is going to support a platform with products for a lifetime, um, product transparency throughout a woman's life, and driving real open, honest conversations about the different stages of a woman's reproductive life. So from the moment she gets her first period um, to when she's in her 20s and making more conscious decisions about the products she's using to when she has a baby um, to, you know, later in life when she's going through menopause, there are all these moments that don't get talked about at the expense of women's health. And um, the more that women talk about these topics, the more that they become informed about what's in all the products they're using and the more they want to change their behaviors. And we want to be the brand that's real with women throughout their lives and driving those open, honest conversations. So for us, subscription is really what works for this product category. You know, in periods, uh, women need the product regularly, so it makes sense. But we don't think of ourselves as building just another subscription box business. What Mm -hmm. we're building is a, a broad brand and a conversation around women's health. So it's quite possible that as you explore adjacent product categories, you'll use a, deli- a different business model for delivery. So we'll, so the, the goal is to build a direct-to-consumer business. So mm-hmm. for the most part, we'll be selling direct um, to women online, but we'll, of course, consider both subscription and a la carte purchase you know, and um, bundles for different aspects of reproductive health, depending on what women need, yes. Alex, let's let's change the subject a little bit. I want to talk about financing and, geez, there's so much rich material here. But I want to I want to start with a, a pretty you have we have a pretty interesting set of investors. So as I looked through at least the data on Crunchbase, uh, two things struck struck me. One is you have at least three, possibly four, of the co-founders of Warby Parker as your investors, and. Uh, the second was you have uh, Lena Dunham as one of your investors. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about maybe uh, both of those investors and and how you got the initial money to do Lola. Yeah. Sure. So we've raised capital three times in the last three years. Mm-hmm. Um, we started with a $1.2 million friends and family round. A year later, raised a $3 million seed round. And then last November, we raised a $7 million Series A. Mm-hmm. Um, we... You know, at the at the very beginning, we knew we wanted to raise friends and family money because we wanted to have as many smart people that we could possibly get involved in the business involved from an early stage and really um, like asking questions and like talking to other entrepreneurs. And so our first round was, you know, somewhere between 18 and 20 investors. um, And we've leveraged those folks as advisors throughout. Um, Our seed round was led by Lara Hippo. And our Series A was led by Spark Capital, and kind of we knew as we progressed, we would want um, larger institutional partners mm-hmm. to help along the way. Um, the the Warby guys are, you know, friends of mine and Jordana's personally from business school, um, and have been an invaluable resource to us as we've grown the business. We, you know, bounce questions off of them all the time, um, and then. Lena Dunham is actually one of a handful of uh, celebrity investors that we've onboarded. We, you know, are really excited to get more and more women talking about um, reproductive health mm-hmm. and being open about what happens to women's bodies throughout their lives. And she has been an amazing proponent of that for us. Uh, I'm going to make a couple observations. The first is that 
1.2 million friends and family. It's nice to have friends like that. That's a lot of money for friends and family, <laughs> especially if I do the math on, uh, you know, I wish I had friends like that. That's pretty awesome. We call it friends and family. There were five uh, sons and 15 individuals. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, and, and then the second comment is, geez, I want you to just tell me what it was like pitching VCs. I'm just imagining the, the looks you got when you, yeah, I uh, just, okay, tell me stories. How was that VC fundraising? <laughs> um, so fundraising has been really interesting. I think, um, you know, we generally think of it as an advantage because for the most part, you know, over 90% of venture investors are men. Um, and for the most part, they don't know a whole lot about periods and have never touched a tampon or even seen one other than in a box in a bathroom. Um, and so we go into every room with an investor with this kind of extreme knowledge advantage um, where we're able to actually educate um, before we get into the pitch. So I think it's actually been a really wonderful thing for us to get to um, kind of loosen up a room. I mean, it's it's a great topic to, to chat with, you know, someone about who, at, for the first 20 minutes before you get into a pitch because it really uh, opens up a lot of conversation and um, we get to field amazing questions all the time. Uh, so, some of some of our favorites are, um, <laughs> I see there are 18 tampons in a box. Does that last for 18 periods? I think is my favorite. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess my other favorite is um, last time we were fundraising, we met with someone who asked when you put a pad in your underwear, does the sticky part go up or down? Oh, Which come on. <laughs> I, <laughs> we, we get a lot of really funny questions. And the thing is, um, you know, in order to uh, really get investors who are passionate about our business, uh, everyone really has to understand what the products are used for, how mm -hmm. they're used. Mm -hmm. um, and we've we've gotten, well, I think we always were, but we've gotten more and more comfortable um, with the education process and think of it as a really great way to get to know people. All right. You're particularly warped around this subject, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you think it's a good way to get to know people, but so it's be it. really fun. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you picked the right business, and the two of you, you know, have found your calling. It's, it's awesome. Um, okay. I want to I wanna change the subject just a little bit, as fun as that is, um, yeah, to talk about uh, acquisition of customers. So this is a business that follows the sort of standard logic of you have lifetime value of a customer because you're acquiring them into a subscription business and you're hoping to own them for a long time, to have that relationship for a long time. And the normal way of thinking about that is that your lifetime value of that customer has to substantially exceed the acquisition cost of, of the customer. And I want to ask you a couple of questions. First of all, is in fact that the way you think about it? And B, how analytical were you in your planning as to thinking about LTV and CAC. CAC is the acronym for customer acquisition cost. Yeah, so that is how we think about it. Um, we're very analytical. You know, the way the business works before a low price product is that in a lot of situations, we're not paying back our customers on the first purchase. So, yeah. um, you know, the business model works in, for this particular product. Um, as we build a subscription model and actually retain customers for the long term. So we're willing to, 
you know, invest up front in making sure that we're getting the message across clearly that the brand is really landing and that um, people are excited to sign up for a subscription rather than a one-off purchase and in the long term, um, or not in the long term, but in the short to medium term, we're able to actually um, start to make money. And and how how deliberately have you experimented and explored different acquisition methods? And maybe you could talk us through a little bit of that process, because I'm sure that the LTV is probably quite easy to calculate. You make a few assumptions about about churn and, and margins and so forth. You can figure out LTV. But but the, the CAC, the acquisition cost, is often the harder part of this. How have you explored that? And what have you found? What advice can you give people on acquiring customers? Sure. So at first, we were very focused on building the business organically. And I think that's something that we are passionate about doing forever as a big part of our acquisition model, because um, we really feel like we're building a community here. And we want all of the women that end up being Lola subscribers and being part of the Lola community to refer their friends and, um, you know, share their experiences and help us grow the business. And um, so at first we were really focused on word of mouth and press. Mm -hmm. And I think on the word of mouth side, um, the best thing we did and the best advice I have was build an ambassador program early. Um, It's something that we spent a lot of time on before we launched the business. We held, you know, 15 focus groups across the U.S. and talked to as many women as we could about their habits and told them about what we were building. And we were really able to activate a strong, enthusiastic community um, at launch that has stayed with us for the last two years and really helped us grow the business and be our supporters. Um, press was obviously a really meaningful tool for us at first. Um, and, you know, especially selling a product that's technically classified as a medical device. It was important for us to have, um, you know, objective outsiders talking about, you know, why it's important to know what's in this product and why what we're building will make women's lives easier. And so um, press was a really big piece of that for the first few months too. Um, And then over time we've experimented a bit also on the paid acquisition side, um, most notably on Facebook and Um, within that, most notably within video, because I think, um, as we discussed earlier, we're telling a story about why, you know, why you should know what's in this product and then talking about Lola. And I think it really requires more in-depth storytelling than just um, static ads or other ways of communicating. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, so let me see if I get this, the numbers right here. So the last fundraising round uh, was your Series A? Remind me how much money that was. Um, that was seven million in November. Seven million, just you know, in November. So uh, eight, eight, nine months ago, um, what had to be proven to raise the Series A? Did the acquisition cost have to be proven, or is that your main goal for you for this phase of Series A? Um, so to raise the Series A, we had already spent you know six to twelve months experimenting. Um, um, you know, to try and prove out what our CAC would be with a small budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that was that was a part of it. Um, also, we were proving out, you know, whether or not we could build an early community of women who loved the brand um, and, you know, wanted to stick with the service. Um, and, you know, 
looking ahead to the next couple rounds of funding, definitely LTV and CAC will be a really big piece of how we talk about the business and what investors are interested in. And I think, um, you know, we've kind of proven out the range in which we're able to acquire customers. And now the question is, can we scale within that right. range? Right. I mean, this is one of the key challenges. If you just take Facebook, for instance, if you have a really targeted audience, you can often acquire quite efficiently. But then the question is, how many how many such audiences are there? And if you just spend more, uh, clearly, you're going to start to reach diminishing returns. Um, exactly. Yeah. And that's why, um, you know, at this stage, we're not only investing in core channels, but we're also, you know, continuing to test a lot of other ways to grow the business because, you know, you never want to just rely on one right. one channel. Right. Okay. I want to turn to probably our final topic, which is uh, sourcing. And uh, talk a little bit about how hard it is to find somebody to make to make a new kind of tampon for you. Sure. So um, one of the first things we did actually when we came up with the idea for Lola was to try and assess that ourselves because we knew that that would be you know, one of the big challenges of mm-hmm. starting this company. And so um, there are, you know, a handful of really great tampon manufacturers globally. Um, we kind of traveled the world. We met with a lot of them um, and found, who you know, the best of the best. Um, and they've been our partner since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And and so there was already a third-party a a third-party contract manufacturing business in tampons. It isn't that P&G, for instance, controls all the manufacturing. Correct. Okay. Um, and so our supply, our you know, our long-standing supplier relationship is actually based in Europe. Mm. And so this, and and in terms of the process, you had to substitute a new fiber, but otherwise, much of the way they already make tampons could be could be employed. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly right. And over time, you know, we'll be thinking about how to make our product um, more more of a Lola product, Mm -hmm. really, you know, making it exactly what all of our customers want it to be. Um, And, you know, eventually think about, you know, how to how to scale our manufacturing um, beyond where we are today. Yeah. All right. Uh, Alex, well, Remarkably, we're, we're out of time, and but it's such an interesting story, and I really appreciate your taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. For more information about Lola, you can visit mylola.com. You can also follow them on Twitter, at mylolatweet. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.